0: Hey everyone. You're listening to Learning in the Dark.
1: Hey everyone. You're listening to Learning hey in the Dark. Hey everyone. You're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone. You're listening to, I, you're listening to I- everyone, Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone. You're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone. You're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey, dar- you're, listening you're, listening hey. hey you're, dar-. you're listening
0: to Learning in the Dark. Hi. My name's Rebecca
1: and my name is James.
0: And you're listening to Learning in the Dark. radiology residents, and welcome back to Learning in the Dark, the podcast aimed at making those dark on-call nights just a little brighter. My name's Rebecca.
1: And my name's James, and we're your co-hosts.
0: This podcast targets those high-yield on-call pathologies that will prepare you for call, taking cases, and the boards. The game plan for today is to start with an approach. James will take us through a case like he would in rounds, letting us in on his approach and formatting through the classic four D's of radiology. Detect. Describe. Differential. And decision.
1: The cases are available on our website, learninginthedark.com. Please follow along or just listen in as we embark on this fun radiologic journey.
0: Alright James, so what's our topic for today?
1: Uh, Today's topic is our must-know on-call ultrasound topic, ectopic pregnancies.
0: I like it. I'm really glad we're going through this one. It's super important for those nights on call. And our diagnosis saves lives. Alrighty, James, take it away. What's your approach?
1: Yeah, so my approach on call for ectopic pregnancies... um, is to do an ultrasound for these cases. <laughs> so sense. I start by doing, yeah, I start by, um, start by transabdominal scanning just to get the lay of the land, um, build some rapport with the patient. Um, but most of these cases, you'll end up needing to do an internal or an endovaginal exam for these. And the first thing I look at when I scan a patient is the uterus. And I'm looking for a gestational sac, a fluid collection with the little round yolk sac within it that tells me this is an intrauterine pregnancy if i see that i just then breathe a sigh of relief i still scan the adnexa and look for fluid and then end the exam so i like i mentioned i start by looking at the uterus looking for fluid collection or um or blood products in the endometrial cavity or endometrial thickening Uh, it's really important to evaluate the uterus first so the first question i ask myself is is there a pregnancy in the uterus after that what i do is i look at both adnexa uh, and I look for a suspicious mass that's independent of the ovaries that suggests that there's a pregnancy in a tube, which is the most common location you're going to find it. So my second step is, is there anything suspicious in the adnexa? It's normal to see a corpus luteal cyst in pregnancy early this stage. So I'll try and make myself certain that I see a corpus luteal cyst, which you see most of the time. And then once I see that, then I look for other adenexal structures. So that's part two. And then the third thing I do uh, is I look for fluid in the pelvis, Uh, and everyone's allowed a trace of fluid, um, but if there's a blood clot or complex fluid or just more fluid than I would typically expect, that's the third thing that I look for. And so then when I have these three pieces of information, uh, what's going on in the uterus, what's going on in the adnexa, and what's going on with the fluid, um, then I can sort of classify these for myself into either... uh, Definite ectopic, a probable ectopic, a pregnancy of unknown location, a probable intrauterine gestation, or a definite intrauterine gestation. And I'll sort of um, get into those, what each of those means, a bit later on. And then, um, and then, in terms of the the management from here, you've basically got three things in your arsenal as a radiology resident. Um, you can suggest beta hCG follow up, which most of these patients will have when an ectopic is suspected. A gynecology opinion, if you suspect that things need to be dealt with tonight. Uh, or a repeat ultrasound, because sometimes time is the the ultimate test for everyone. So I always have those three in my back pocket.
0: That's awesome. Okay, so really, uterus, adnexa, and free fluid. Got that.
1: It's really just the only three things that you need to look for, because uh, if you just think about those three things every time, you can make your approach really simple.
0: I like that. The KISS principle. Keep it silly, simple. (laughs) All right. Something. Something like that. Learning objectives. Detect. 1. What is the epidemiology of ectopic pregnancy? 2. What is the normal progression of embryological development for the early stages of a pregnancy? 3. What are the risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy? Okay, so this leads us on to our detect section. So ectopic pregnancies actually only occur in about 2% of pregnancies, but have been increasing due to reproductive technology. 7 to 27% of pregnancies, though, will present with bleeding during the first trimester. So ultrasound's a super key uh, imaging modality. patients to differentiate these causes of bleeding in conjunction of course with the clinical history and beta hcg so i think it's also really important to keep note of the difference between the gestational age and the embryonic age i know they kind of drill this home in med school but it is actually important for radiology as well so the gestational age is based off the last last menstrual period whereas the embryonic age is actually based off the days since fertilization Um, And for the purposes of this podcast, we'll stick with the gestational age when we're describing things. And who guessed? James, we're going back to embryology. Are you excited? So, (laughs) I know I can hear it in your laugh. You're very excited. But just a couple of terms to make sure that you really understand what's going on um, during a normal pregnancy. And in order to understand abnormal, you have to understand normal so, the decidua is a transient platform within the pregnant endometrium that forms after the attachment of a blastocyst. On ultrasound, you'll see a thickening of the endometrium around the gestational sac. And the gestational sac represents the chorionic cavity and is a hypoechoic structure embedded in the uterine endometrium. So, these are really key terms that you've got to know. The gestational sac is usually evident on ultrasound at approximately week four of gestational age or week four or five. Uh, the yolk sac starts to develop during the first week, but it's not ad- evident on ultrasound until week five. Uh, growth occurs until week 10. And then the yolk sac actually looks like this round, hypo- stru- hypoechoic structure inside the gestational sac uh, with surrounding echogenic walls, but outside of the amniotic cavity. And then the fetal pole, which is separate from the yolk sac, um, appears around week six. So, kind of understanding all of the different. Uh, components of a pregnancy is very key. And so in a normal pregnancy, that's going to be found in the endometrium. But in an ectopic, we're going to find it in a bunch of other funky locations.
1: Yeah, that's a great review of the embryology, Rebecca. In terms of the clinical presentation of these patients, we know that many of them will present with pelvic pain and vaginal bleeding. A subset of patients with ectopic pregnancies that have ruptured present very uh, acutely and in an unstable manner where they're hypotensive, uh, they're in shock, They've got uh, evidence of blood loss and significant um, free fluid in their belly on on bedside exam. Uh, These patients should probably bypass ultrasound altogether uh, and head right to the operating room in the context of a uh, of a positive pregnancy test.
0: No kidding. That's that can be scary times for both physician and patient.
1: Yeah. So when I get requests to do an ultrasound overnight for ectopic pregnancy, um, that's one of the things I try and sort out. Is is this an Unstable patient, is this a a tenuous patient or is this a totally well patient who might uh, benefit from an ultrasound uh, in the morning in the light of day?
0: Those are great questions. So other things I guess you can ask, well, I guess more of our clinical colleagues will ask initially are the risk factors for ectopic pregnancy. Uh, There are a number of them, but the key three ones that you definitely need to remember are a previous ectopic pregnancy a history of pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID, a history of gynecologic surgery. So please remember those ones. And then I'm going to tell you about a bunch of other ones as well. <laughs> so other things are like infertility, use of IUDs, a history of placenta previa, use of uh, IVF, congenital uh, congenital uterine anomalies, history of smoking, endometriosis, and then exposure to uh, DES while in utero, actually. So not, not the mother but when the mother was a fetus
1: right yeah again a really unusual um, risk factor and, and one really that's uh, i think still just a relic on some board exam somewhere
0: you never know um, you never know days. it's fun to know the zebras too
1: <laughs> um so the workup of ectopic pregnancies for our clinical colleagues consists of history and physical exam uh, a lab work establishing a, at least a baseline beta hCG level, or looking at the trend of the beta hCG, uh, is important. And then, really, ultrasound is the uh, the mainstay.
0: So, what are those key levels that we should be looking for in a beta hCG?
1: Yeah, it, with regard to doing ultrasound, it's um, it's around fifteen hundred. If you if you have a beta hCG of around fifteen hundred, you should see a gestational sac on an endovaginal exam. Uh, Oh, sorry, on a, a vaginal ultrasound. Uh, if you don't, then you have to be suspicious that it's either an ectopic or a pregnancy loss, although it may very well end up being just a, an early IEP, uh, an intrauterine pregnancy. Uh, and then the other one is 6,000 for transabdominal exams. Um, although the one I, I tend to stick with is more the 1500 because I think uh, most of these studies should be, um, should be getting internal exams to look at the adnexa.
0: Gotcha, okay. I will remember those values learning objectives
1: describe what's the gold standard imaging modality where is the most common location for an ectopic pregnancy and what are the key ultrasound findings for an ectopic pregnancy
0: so you can't describe stuff without knowing your normal anatomy so it is important to understand uh, the uterus and its components it's located posterior to the bladder and anterior to the rectum, and it's composed of four main segments, the fundus, the corpus, the isthmus, and the cervix. cervix. Uh, There's also ligamentous uh, support structures surrounding it, and the blood supply is from uh, the uterine artery, which is a branch from the anterior division of the internal iliacs, um, as well as the ovarian artery. And then as the blood traverses the myometrium, it branches into these arcuate arteries and then radial arteries. The fallopian tubes, very particularly important for ectopic pregnancies, uh, can be subdivided into the fimbriae, which are these little finger-like projections, as well as a fun word, uh, the ampulla, the isthmus, and the infundibulum.
1: So, in terms of imaging these, uh, these, this anatomy that you've just described, Rebecca, the workhorse, I think, I think I said earlier, is ultrasound for these. Uh, MRI can be used in a few certain circumstances, uh, although not commonly, and CT with IV contrast um, shouldn't really be used to diagnose these cases. Uh, In terms of the ultrasound findings, uh, which we'll really focus on here, uh, the findings vary based on the location and the type of the ectopic pregnancy, but keeping in mind that tubal pregnancies are the most common. So tubal pregnancies are like 95% 95% of ectopic pregnancies, and mostly in the ampulla, um, the portion uh, just uh, just medial to the the fimbrial end of the fallopian tube. In terms Makes of f-
0: sense. it's the biggest part.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. In terms of findings for a tubal pregnancy on ultrasound, what we're looking for is an adnexal mass that's separate from the ovary. So, on most normal ultrasounds, especially ones that I do, I don't see the tubes unless they're filled with fluid or blood, or in this case an ectopic pregnancy. So this adnexal mass that we see separate from the ovary, I think about as being a pregnancy contained within the tube, which you can now see. Uh, If the mass has a heart rate or it has a yolk sac, uh, then that's diagnostic of an ectopic pregnancy. Some people talk about the tubal ring sign, this hypervascular echogenic ring surrounding this this mass. I've never really found that too helpful, mostly because a corpus luteal cyst can look exactly the same, uh, or at least look very similar. So what I'm looking for is a mass that moves completely independent of the ovary. And the way I do this is by taking my probe and I warn the patient that it may hurt, it may be tender. uh, And then I move, I try and capture images, cine video images, uh, showing the ovary and this adnexal mass moving separate from each other and if i can convince myself that that's the case then this is almost certainly an ectopic pregnancy after i've looked at the adnexa or after the adnexal findings are described then i look at the endometrium and the endometrium in a tubal pregnancy can be really variable it can be totally normal it can have blood and fluid in it some people have described a pseudo gestational sac i think this sort of is going a bit out of vogue now um, so I just describe it as a bit of fluid within the endometrial cavity if I see that. Um, and then, again, the third thing I look for are the extrauterine findings. So pelvic free fluid. Um, do I see other evidence of blood within the tube or blood within the abdomen itself?
0: Nexa, endometrium, extrauterine or free fluid. Got it. All right, so what about this entity of the interstitial pregnancy? I've heard that it's quite less, well, definitely less common than the tubal
1: yeah absolutely um in interstitial pregnancies the when the tube comes into the uterus there's a little segment called the intramyometrial segment and this is the segment of the tube between um, its peritoneal segments and the endometrial cavity and very rarely a pregnancy can implant into that segment and this can cause life-threatening problems because what doesn't what ruptures is not necessarily the tube but often the uterus itself if um, if this isn't identified early on so these pregnancies are very eccentrically located with a thin layer of myometrium classically it's less than five percent but like anything in radiology it's not always about numbers it has to be really convincing that there is really not much covering this pregnancy or covering the gestational sac um I've seen a few cases that have been suspected to be interstitials that have undergone short follow-up and it turns out that they're just a really eccentrically located pregnancy that when you follow it up uh, sort of descends more into the central endometrium Uh, and so I find the diagnosis of an interstitial pregnancy really challenging and like so many things if if the patient's stable and if it's a wanted pregnancy I think sometimes doing a short interval follow-up in conjunction with your gynecology opinion. Uh, is is sometimes the best thing for these patients.
0: What is like a short inter- interval follow-up? Would you say a couple of days? Like,
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't have a good number for interstitial pregnancies. If I don't, say if, say if I'm doing a, an, a pelvic ultrasound for a suspected ectopic and I don't see anything, the quote pregnancy of on location I'll often say 7 to 10 days is probably a pretty good interval. If there's nothing suspicious about it, like no suspicious adnexal mass, no fluid, no hemorrhage, maybe 7 to 10 days.
0: Okay, that's great. All right, so I'm back to my zebras, sorry. So the ovarian pregnancy, which is also very rare, risk factors include an IUD potential use, Um, and it may also occur in relation to heterotopic pregnancies, which we'll get into later. Um, So those findings that we'd see in... Uh, the oh-so-lovely zebra would be uh, the gestational sac, chorionic villi, or atypical cysts with a hyperechoic ring, as James so astutely described before in the context of a tubal pregnancy, um, but alongside a normal fallopian tube and located really in the adnexa, but also very rare.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've never seen an ovarian pregnancy. I um I don't know how I'd go about that, to be honest, if I suspected one.
0: <laughs> well, that makes two of us. <laughs>
1: Um, the next one is the cervical pregnancy. And this is a, a pregnancy that develops within the endocervical canal. Again, really rare. You've got a, a gestational sac in the endocervical canal. And so what's on the differential diagnosis for a cervical pregnancy, so if you see a gestational sac in the endocervical canal, is um, that of a basically a, an early pregnancy loss in progress where the, the patient's miscarrying. And so the um gestational sac is descending through the endocervical canal so again if i see a pregnancy in the endocervical canal um which i I haven't done yet but you know you really want to assess for whether that's uh, mobile and whether or not it looks like uh, an early pregnancy loss again if you're uncertain um again a short interval follow-up is is probably a good a good thing if there's no other adverse features and it looks like it's quite early on um, as well as clinical follow-up by telling the patient to or asking the patient to watch for signs of um, passing products of conception.
0: Gotcha. All right, so what about these scar pregnancies? So they're very rare, accounting for less than 1% of the atopics. And their pathophysiology is thought to be secondary to these fibrous tracts that are formed from previous surgeries that connect the uterine endometrium to the myometrium and you find these gestational sacs that are present in the anterior wall of the inferior aspect of the uterus, or aka where the um, previous surgery occurred, and the myometrial tissue may be thinned anteriorly due to compression. James, can you see pregnancies anywhere else?
1: Um, yeah, we're pretty much making our way through the list. I guess the last one I can think of is the the abdominal pregnancy or the intra-abdominal pregnancy, which is pregnancy that's located in the peritoneal cavity uh, away from the tubes and ovaries uh, and these are a source of, of high morbidity and mortality uh, compared to tubal ectopics and again the findings are are pretty non-specific or similar to other tubal pregnancies you don't have a normal intruder in gestation and then you find a gestational sac somewhere in the peritoneal cavity uh, together with uh, with likely some hemorrhage and yeah, then the last yeah. one Rebecca
0: yes the last so one we
1: We've talked about my approach, which is if there's nothing in the uterus, then really focus on the adnexa. But if you see something in the uterus and you see something, if you see a pregnancy in the uterus, and then you look to the adnexa and you see a pregnancy there,
0: what? Your my my mind's being blown. Oh no, I think that's called the heterotopic pregnancy. So you've got two.
1: Yeah, and and these are really rare, and so. You know, you can spend a long time scanning pregnancies or early pregnancies, but I find generally if I find uh, an intrauterine gestation after that, I'm I'm sort of ticking off normal ovaries. The one exception to that is if the patient tells me that they've had IVF or or other assisted reproductive technologies. In that case, if they're experiencing bleeding or abdominal pain, then I will hunt hard uh, to see if I can find a heterotopic pregnancy these patients are at, are at the highest risk for
0: these. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very challenging, but I'm glad it's also a, a rare entity. So James, can you tell us and really go through this classification that you mentioned briefly before? I feel like it's a very helpful way to summarize all of the findings and uh, terminology in ectopic pregnancies. Yeah,
1: so again, first thinking about the uterus and what we see in it gestational sac you can call it a gestational sac if you see the round little yolk sac in it okay Uh, and then the embryo plus or minus and then in the adnexa you're looking for uh, any complex adnexal mass that's independent of the ovary and and or a heartbeat or gestational sac and yolk sac outside of the uterus so the the most straightforward and i think is a definite intruder in gestation and this is when you see a gestational sac in the endometrial cavity. This is an intrauterine gestation. The next is what we'll call a probable intrauterine gestation. So this is when you see a fluid sac-like structure. You don't see the yolk sac just yet and you don't see an embryo but you see a little intrauterine fluid sac or sac-like collection and nothing in the adenexa, nothing suspicious in the adnexa, no fluid. This is a probable intrauterine gestation. Many of these will end up being normal intrauterine gestations, or there'll be early pregnancy losses, and so these ones can be followed up. The pregnancy of unknown location is what I call the triple negative, so it's nothing in the uterus, nothing in the adnexa, and no free fluid.
0: Where is it? Where is it?
1: <laughs> yeah, so here are the diagnostic possibilities is three. So it can either be an early intrauterine pregnancy, it can be an occult topic, or it can be a completed spontaneous abortion. Fourth, our probable ectopic pregnancy is when you see that extra uterine or adnexal mass and nothing in the uterus. And the last is the definite ectopic pregnancy. And this is when you're looking out in the adnexa and you see either a yolk sac or a heartbeat or something where you're confident that what you're looking at in the adnexa is not uh, an, an, another kind of mass, but it, you're confident that that's a pregnancy outside and then that's a definite ectopic pregnancy. So in my head, I have this spectrum ranging from definite ectopic to definite intrauterine, and I've got five options. And once I've looked for those three things, what's in the uterus, what's in the adnexa, and is there any fluid, the fluid being more the supporting feature, like if you see a lot of blood, that's going to tip you towards that there's something sinister going on. Uh, I try and categorize my impression. Uh, my final report as being one of those five. And then the management sort of flows naturally from there. Like definite ectopic, that's going to go to gyne. Probable ectopic goes to gyne. Pregnancy of unknown location can be followed probably using beta HCG, serial ultrasound, probable intrauterine the same, and definite intrauterine just moves on to, um, you might get a viability scan or a dating scan afterwards in a couple weeks' time.
0: Learning objectives. Differential one. What other entities should we be considering?
1: And decision one. What's the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy?
0: Okay, this leads us on to our differential section. So abdominal and pelvic pain in pregnancy has a very broad differential. And we kind of touched on a lot of the different things uh, in our previous discussion about the findings that we should kind of keep keep ourselves out on the lookout for. Um, But other considerations for abdominal pain, bleeding in pregnancy should also be considered. So appendicitis. um, You can also get an exophytic corpus luteum. You can get a ruptured corpus luteum as well as other incidental adnexal masses. Anything else that I missed, James?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you've got a mass, you can always tort the mass. So an adnexal or an ovarian torsion as well, early in pregnancy is uh, is always something to keep in mind.
0: Okay, and then definitely refer to James's classification. So scroll back or re-listen, but hammer that home, because that's really your key differential to kind of getting that spectrum of pregnancies and where they are. Okay, so this leads us to our decision. So, treatment options are very patient dependent, and prompt referral, where appropriate, is incredibly important when we f- uh, see these things both on call or not, if they are just incidental and the patients come in. Um, so James, what are the different kind of types of management that we can take with patients?
1: Yeah, Sometimes the safest thing to do is or sometimes the best thing to do if it's safe enough is to just do expectant management. Expectant management can be used for uh, patients who present early, who are asymptomatic, who, have, who fall into maybe the category of a pregnancy of unknown location or a probable intrauterine during gestation. In this case, we can follow the beta hCG levels um, and do follow-up ultrasounds to make sure that the pregnancy is moving in the right direction. Uh, if it's not Rebecca, then they might need medical or surgical management. What does that involve?
0: Yeah, so medical management is usually in the form of methotrexate, and it's very dependent uh, or patient dependent, and it can be considered in patients that are hemodynamically stable um, with an unruptured ectopic pregnancy and who have no contraindications to methotrexate. This is not the decision of the radiologist. The gynecologist will definitely be making this call. Uh, And then surgical management, usually in the form of a laparoscopic approach, um, and it's really dependent on where the ectopic pregnancy is. Um, I also want to stress the value of communicating and counseling for radiologists in the management of patients with ectopic pregnancy. Um, It's quite an an involved exam to have both an abdominal and endovaginal exam in the context of uh, both a painful and stressful situation. And we can offer a lot of value by just being able to talk and um, ease the stress of the situation to our patients. Um, so just those those soft skills that we got to keep in mind when we're on call and tired at four in the morning, the patients are probably more tired and more scared than we are.
1: Yeah, they absolutely are. And the other thing that um, we can stress is the importance of the relationship with our gyne- gynecology colleagues when we're managing or or trying to figure out uh, early pregnancy conundrums. And at our institution, I think we have a really good relationship with the gynae residents who are all very quite available and what I'll often do is if they call me up requesting a scan, um, is, uh, I'll ask them to come into the room and actually, uh, well, you know, with the patient, if the patient's okay with having a few people in there, uh, and we'll scan the case together so that I can point out to them, um, what I'm seeing in real time, because I think that that's really valuable for both communicating findings and for, um, uh, I think improving a, a collegial relationship, if you can show uh, you know, your colleague, the presence of a heart rate within, within a uterus or outside of a uterus or a suspicious mass, so that they get the sense of what you're going through as well, rather than you're doing this all and then giving them a report afterwards. It, it, most of these scans overnight take only maybe 15, 20 minutes of actual scanning time. Uh, and so it's a short time commitment for both of you, but I find that that's been actually very helpful.
0: Absolutely really just bringing everyone into the same room, being on the same page, on the same team.
1: Yeah, and, and you'll find that when you do these ultrasounds overnight, it's you and the patient and often a chaperone in the room together, and they'll have a lot of questions for you because there's a lot of uncertainty that goes along with early pregnancies. Uh, and if you can have one of your gynecology colleagues there, um, they're sort of doing their consult at the same time maybe, or, or getting a bit of extra information for their records. Uh, And then for them to be able to answer the questions in the room can also be um, probably the best thing, rather than sort of deferring those questions uh, to them later on when they might forget them.
0: Yeah, I love that. Helpful on all sides. All right, team. So that wraps up the case for this week. Hopefully we shed some light on ectopic pregnancies while you were learning in the dark. Please check out our website at learninginthedark.com for cases, show notes, and a link to our survey to provide us with feedback for future episodes. Until next time, stay happy and healthy. Adios.